Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 14, where we will be discussing heart failure. For those of you that are new to my podcast, welcome. I'm very happy to have you here. And for those of you that have been with me in prior podcasts, I thank you so very much for coming and joining me again today. Please take a moment and head over to my website. The link is below. It is khoppypresents.com where you will find a listing of future podcasts that will be coming your way. It will also give you the opportunity to become a subscriber in order to be updated as to programs that are coming your way as well. If you find after listening to this podcast that it would be uh, beneficial to you and your colleagues to have me come to your facility to provide a full CCRN review, please uh, feel free to contact me. It's something I very much enjoy doing. Again, my contact information is on the website, so I would love to be able to hear from you. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into heart failure. Let's start out with a brief definition. What is heart failure? Well, basically it's a condition in which the heart can't really pump adequately enough for whatever reason to meet the body's needs, to meet the tissue's needs. So really when you look at it, when you break it down, anything that can impair either filling or emptying of the heart will cause, has the potential at least for causing heart failure. And when you look at the number one cause, the number one cause is coronary artery disease and add to that the person that has had a prior infarct. Now, when we talk about pulmonary edema, pulmonary edema is where we have an accumulation of fluid in the alveolus that results in impaired diffusion across the alveolar capillary membrane. I think that's something that we all know, but we also have to separate it in our minds. We have to separate it into cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema because there are two types and they really are very different from one another in terms of both etiology as well as pathophysiology. When we talk about cardiogenic pulmonary edema, the most common cause for this is left ventricular failure. So in left ventricular failure, we see that 
um, pressure builds up over on that left side. We see an elevation in our pulmonary artery pressures. We see an elevation in our wedge pressure as fluid and pressure backs up into the pulmonary vascular bed. What happens is hydrostatic pressure literally pushes fluid out of the very congested pulmonary capillaries into first the interstitium of the lung, which will increase the patient's work of breathing. They will become tachypneic, have increased work of breathing. And then that fluid leaks into the alveolus. And that's where we have a person that goes into pulmonary edema. And really what we see in terms of this fluid movement is we see what's called a transudative fluid movement, because what we're seeing is transudate, which means fluid only moving into the lung interstitium. And so these patients run the risk of going on to develop a transudative pleural effusion. Now, another thing to mention about cardiogenic pulmonary edema is the fact that, of course, your filling pressures are going to increase, and that I just mentioned. But as a rule of thumb, your PAD and your wedge pressure will remain within about five millimeters of mercury of one another. And that we see very commonly in a cardiogenic cause of pulmonary edema. So let's move on then to non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So obviously, as the name implies, it's pulmonary edema related to a source that is not the heart. And so the most common cause that we see in the critical care setting is ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. That is, you know, a number one. Certainly it could also be seen in drowning Uh, types of situations, but ARDS in critical care, it's very common. So now we have a different thing going on here. What we have with non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema is we have a loss in pulmonary capillary integrity. And when you lose pulmonary capillary integrity, you wind up developing very wide gaping holes in the pulmonary capillaries, which allow an increase in permeability. And what happens when we have that increase in permeability is not only does fluid leak out of the pulmonary capillary bed, but along with it, formed elements, formed elements such as protein and blood. And so this actually is more of an exudative fluid movement. So these patients would have an exudative pleural effusion. So a very big difference, you know, you can have somebody that's in cardiogenic pulmonary edema and you can treat them very aggressively and get them whipped into shape within a matter of hours. When it's a non-cardiogenic cause where we have actual damage to the pulmonary capillary bed, we have wide gaping holes. You're not going to be able to whip somebody into shape very fast with a non-cardiogenic cause. And we see it in critical care all the time where ARDS, certainly the mortality rate goes up and it is harder to get those patients to turn the corner. So another thing to keep in mind is that should a PA catheter be in place and on the CCRN exam, you see a fair amount of those, that's for sure. What will happen is the, the PA diastolic 
will climb disproportionate to the wedge. Now, remember, when we talked about cardiogenic, we said in cardiogenic pulmonary edema, the PA diastolic pretty much hangs around within about five millimeters of the wedge pressure. And the wedge or pulmonary artery occlusive pressure is always lower than your PAD. But now we're seeing a situation where both pulmonary artery systolic and diastolic climb and you see that big disproportionate increase in pulmonary artery diastolic when compared to the wedge pressure. Now, a common thing that we hear when we're talking about heart failure is we hear that a patient has systolic dysfunction or a patient has diastolic dysfunction. So let's take a moment and talk about that. It's really pretty simple when you think about systole and diastole, because when you think about systole, of course, you're talking about contraction. Diastole, you're talking about relaxation. So if a patient has heart failure with systolic dysfunction, that means that the ventricle has difficulty ejecting blood. So we're talking about forward movement of blood. That is systolic dysfunction. Typically what we see is a patient that has a, you know, big old enlarged ventricle or ventricles. And when we do an echo on these folks, we see that their ejection fraction is less than 40%. And um, so that is systolic dysfunction. And so what, how do we treat it? Well, we treat it with preload and afterload reduction, and we're going to be talking about that. That is the ACE and ARB family. We're going to use inotropes and diuretics and you know, we're going to eventually be using things like beta blockers or combined alpha and beta blockers. And we'll be talking about why in just a few moments. We also need to deal with the dysrhythmias that chamber enlargement cause causes. So we would be using anti-dysrhythmic therapy and for a poorly functional ventricle, maybe this person's had an MI, has a poorly functioning ventricle, we really need to be thinking about incorporating anticoagulation therapy. For example, so many of these patients go into atrial fibrillation. Well, we know when an atria just sits there and quivers, you have the potential for a clot. Now, if you have a poorly functioning left ventricle, you are basically a sitting duck for mural thrombi. And so once again, that calls into play the use of anticoagulation. Now let's compare systolic dysfunction with diastolic dysfunction. So when we talk about diastole, of course, that's a time when the ventricle is relaxing and filling. When we talk about diastolic dysfunction, our problem is filling, relaxing and filling. So maybe this person has had an MI in the past and they have this stiff ventricle that cannot relax and fill normally. Well, for those people, we're going to find ourselves using things like beta blockers or combined alpha and beta blockers. Um, if we have congestion or congestive heart failure that goes along with that diastolic dysfunction, well, then we're going to incorporate again, our ACEs and ARBs and diuretics if needed and anti-dysrhythmic therapy. We find that a lot of people with hypertension have diastolic dysfunction. 
And so again, hypertension being one of those causes of heart failure. Sometimes guys, we have patients that have combined systolic and diastolic dysfunction. So they can indeed occur together. So what we're going to look at now, since we looked at systolic and diastolic dysfunction, we're going to shift our sights over to right-sided versus left-sided heart failure. And so I just want you to think about this logically now, and I want you to picture the heart inside your head. And I want you to, first of all, start out by thinking about that right side and ask yourself, what is it that could cause the right side to fail? Well, anything that causes problems with the right ventricle ejecting certainly could cause the right side to fail. So what kinds of things can cause the right ventricle to have an increased workload in trying to eject? Well, what does the right ventricle eject into? We know that the right ventricle ejects into the pulmonary artery. So anything that increases pressure or resistance out in the pulmonary vascular bed is certainly going to put a workload on that right side. So, you know, what comes into play at this point? Well, there are several things that come into play, but one is anything that causes pulmonary hypertension. So think about that as a big old umbrella term, because what kinds of things can cause pulmonary hypertension? Well, we have pulmonary embolism as a cause. Very commonly, we have the chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patient. In nursing school, we were always taught about the blue bloater as somebody that has chronic pulmonary hypertension related to what? Related to hypoxia and hypercapnia, mitral valve disease, or pulmonic valve disease can also put an increased workload on that right ventricle, causing it to fail. Maybe the person's had an inferior wall MI with right ventricular involvement. That is going to impair the right ventricle's ability to unload out into the pulmonary artery. So would things like volume overload. What about dysrhythmias, maybe tachydysrhythmias, or maybe atrial fibrillation? We know that that ventricle loses about 30% of its filling when in atrial fibrillation. And so when you think about your chronic CO2 retainers, the people that are your blue bloaters, very commonly they have issues with atrial dysrhythmias, whether it be atrial flutter or atrial fibrillation. It kind of goes hand in hand. So those are some of the causes for right-sided heart failure. Now, what do we see in terms of clinical presentation? Well, we see the person that comes in with pitting edema, jugular venous distension. And remember when you're assessing for jugular venous distension, and we talked about this in the physical assessment section uh, or episode, I should say. Um, you know, normal jugular venous distension at 30 to 45 degrees is only about a finger breadth above the clavicle. Anything beyond that in that position, of course, would be termed jugular venous distension. And what we're looking at really is the internal jugular. That's what we're looking at because that's our body's internal, let's just call it a fluid barometer. 
We can also, in these folks, see bounding pulses, sometimes because the right ventricle faces forward and it's located right beneath the sternum. Sometimes we can see a parasternal lift or a parasternal heave uh, when you're inspecting the chest wall. So that also can be very indicative of an enlarged right ventricle. We may hear an S3 or an S4 or a murmur, and they're typically located along the lower left sternal border because it's coming, it's emanating from the right ventricle. These patients have nocturia, they have elevated filling pressures over on that right side. So that would be the central venous pressure as well as the right atrial pressure. They might have oliguria and the presence of what's called a hepatojugular reflux. And if you've ever seen a cardiologist do this, you'll notice that it's a deep palpation technique where they press down over the liver. And as they're pressing in, they kind of slide their fingers upward under the right costal margin. And all the while they're looking at the level of engorgement of the jugular veins. So are the jugular veins becoming more engorged with pressure applied over the liver? Because these people, when you think about the backup of the the right side, when the right ventricle fails, that blood is going to back up from the right ventricle to the right atrium and all the signs and symptoms that you're going to see, they're systemic because fluid and pressure is going to be backing up into the systemic circulation. So these people have hepatomegaly, splenomegaly. Um, they may even have jaundice, you know, if they're Uh, liver is so congested and is not able to break down uh, red blood cells and send that bilirubin over to to make bile and be excreted from the body. Uh, They they could even be jaundice. They have a lot of gastrointestinal type of complaints as well. Anorexia, nausea, uh, vomiting, uh, abdominal pain. They may also have, uh, along with all of this, of course, they will have weight gain. They also feel like, you know, they feel extremely fatigued and weak. So these are some of the right-sided symptoms along with, let's talk about some diagnostics here, abnormal liver function studies such as ALT, AST, and LDH. And as I said, they have this predisposition to developing atrial dysrhythmias. If they are in an atrial rhythm, I should say in a sinus rhythm, where we can actually see P waves, it's really interesting to look because the P waves become tall and peaked and greater than two and a half millimeters in voltage. So take your next COPD or the one with the chronic CO2 and CO2 retention, you know, 50-50 club member, 50 PO2, 50 PCO2. Take a look at their EKG and if they're in sinus rhythm, look at their P wave because the P wave maximum is up to two and a half, 2.5 millimeters looking vertically. So that, that tells you about voltage and you can see very tall peaked P waves 
with these people. And in fact, these peak P waves are called P pulmonale because again, the most often or the most frequent cause of right-sided heart failure is a pulmonary etiology. Also, when we echo these people, uh, we see that they can have uh, an enlarged or dilated right ventricle as well. So let's set our sights then on the left side. On the left side, let's look at etiologies. Really the most common etiology that I mentioned earlier is coronary artery disease. That's a huge etiology of left-sided heart failure, particularly in the case when the patient has had a prior MI. Hypertension is another one, guys. Those are just like two major players. What are some other etiologies? Well, arrhythmias can cause the left side to fail. Congenital defects, volume overload, valve disease. We might be talking about aortic valve disease now. Aortic stenosis is a big one. Myocarditis, where we have inflammation, perhaps infection-related, can cause the left side to fail. Coarctation of the aorta, cardiomyopathy, tamponade, um, collagen vascular diseases, nutritional deficiency even. There's a cardiomyopathy that's associated with profound hypophosphatemia, which can cause the left side to fail. Along with that, of course, we think about family history. Now, how does this patient present with left-sided heart failure? This patient presents with altered mentation, of course, the most common there being confusion, fatigue, weakness, and lethargy. And you know what, guys, if we traced it back to its beginning over on the left side, when patients develop left-sided heart failure, the two earliest signs, I mean, we don't even see them in the hospital at that point, but the two earliest signs of left-sided heart failure are fatigue and exercise intolerance. So thinking about the fact that heart failure occurs so commonly in elderly people, what happens when an elderly person can't mow their lawn anymore? Well, when they can't mow their lawn anymore, they're going to chalk it up to their age. They're not going to go to the doctor for that. They're going to think, well, I'm 75 or I'm 80 or I'm 85. No wonder I can't mow the lawn anymore. I'm getting old. I'll have the neighbor kid do it. When in fact, it might be a early clinical indicator of left-sided heart failure. These patients develop, develop tachypnea, orthopnea, dyspnea on exertion, and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. Those, those three are considered cardinal signs of left-sided heart failure. Of course, the orthopnea is where they get really short of breath when you lay them back. In fact, part of our nursing H&P is aimed at assessing how many pillows a patient sleeps with, right? So we ask patients all the time, you know, when you sleep, how many pillows do you, do you sleep with? So we might express something in our documentation saying that a patient has two pillow orthopnea or three pillow orthopnea. We know patients that have lazy boy chair orthopnea, do they not? where they have to be sitting in a recliner chair at night to be able to sleep because they can't lay back because they can't breathe. 
Dyspnean exertion, of course, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. Paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, that's, of course, that dyspnea that occurs at night. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because when you go to bed at night and you lie down, you actually are increasing flow to the heart. And so if you have left-sided failure and that left side can't take on that additional volume, what will happen is, is you'll hear patients complain that, you know, I go to bed and I lay there for a while, I fall asleep, and then I wake up so short of breath. So I get up, I sit on the side of the bed. Maybe they say they go and sit in a chair, walk around the house. What they're doing by changing their position is they're changing gravitational forces and they're reducing their preload, whether they know it or not, just by reducing their position. And they find that as they sit up, they can breathe better. Narrowed pulse pressure is another sign of left-sided heart failure narrowed pulse pressure, and we typically see that patient become hypotensive. Now for the CCRN exam, the one thing I want you to keep in mind is this might be uh, one of the math problems that you might get on the CCRN exam. It's a low scaled score question. And all it requires to you to do is to subtract the diastolic from the systolic pressure. And that number that you get is your pulse pressure. And it's really easy. It's about, you know, third or fourth grade math. It's not too difficult. And so what we see then is as the left side fails and contractility declines, the systolic blood pressure drops. Well, you know, uh, when we talk about cardiac output versus vascular tone and the relationship between the two, We know that when cardiac output drops, vascular tone increases. So as your systolic blood pressure drops, as you go into left-sided heart failure, your body compensates for that by increasing vascular tone. And as that happens, your diastolic blood pressure climbs. So you get those really weird blood pressures like 60 over 40 or 70 over 50, where you have a pulse pressure narrowing down to 30 or 20, when a normal uh, pulse pressure is somewhere right around 50s. Now, what we see then is we have a patient that, in addition to a narrowing of the pulse pressure, will go on to develop shock-like symptoms. Another thing that's always addressed under left-sided heart failure is pulses alternans. Pulses alternins. Now we can see that in critical care pretty easily because we're pretty spoiled. We have, you know, typically an arterial line in our patients, most of our patients at least. And what you see with pulses alternins is you see that the amplitude of the pulse, when you're looking at your arterial pressure waveform, the amplitude of the pulse will, will vary from beat to beat. And so that is a sign of left-sided heart failure. And we also see guys, pulses alternins occurring very commonly in patients with atrial fibrillation, because when you think about atrial fib, we know it to be an irregularly irregular type of rhythm. So our filling times vary from beat to beat and therefore our amplitude that we see on our pressure waveform varies from beat to beat. 
So if you see pulsus alternans, the two things that usually go through your head are things like left-sided heart failure and atrial fibrillation. Now you don't have to have an arterial line in order to be able to identify this. Of course, you can palpate, not auscultate, you can palpate a peripheral pulse and you can feel the difference in the amplitude of pulses from beat to beat. So in addition, we hear crackles and wheezes in these patients, decreased breath sounds. Now these patients, when they present, now think about this left ventricle. When the left ventricle fails, fluid, blood, pressure is going to back up into the lungs. So the signs and symptoms that we see with left-sided heart failure are respiratory, not systemic like we just discussed with the right side, but rather they are respiratory symptoms. So that's where you're getting all these crackles and wheezes and decreased breath sounds and um, dullness to percussion if you have this inclination to percuss. By the way, it might be a good thing to know for the exam dullness to percussion. Anyway, uh, cool, moist skin, oliguria, they might have this cough where they're coughing up this pink frothy sputum. Um, definitely hypoxic. So we see, you know, hypoxia and decrease in saturation. We can hear S3, S4 heart sounds and a systolic murmur. Now on the right side, that murmur was related to tricuspid regurge. Over on the left side, we are hearing a systolic murmur related to mitral regurge. And you can usually hear that best down at the apex. And if you scoot your stethoscope over into the axillary toward, you know, fifth intercostal, anterior or mid axillary line, you can hear that mitral regurge murmur quite nicely. You can even hear it at the lower left sternal border. Displaced PMI, you know, this invariably is addressed in some way, shape or form on the CCRN. What is the PMI? I always ask people in my classes, PMI, is it something that you see or is it something that you feel or is it something that you listen to? And guys, PMI is something that you feel. PMI stands for point of maximal impulse. Some people will call it point of maximal intensity. And it's something that you feel. It's about the shape of a half dollar, if you think about that shape. And what it represents is the apex of the heart hitting up against the chest wall. About a half dollar in shape and you palpate it at the fifth intercostal space, left midclavicular line. That is the normal placement for the PMI. So it stands to reason then that if we have this big engorged left ventricle, that the PMI will get displaced downward and laterally. So if you get this question, this CCRN question that says something about, you know, as part of your assessment findings, the PMI is felt to be at the sixth intercostal space, left anterior axillary line, you know, guys, that that's not where it's supposed to be. And so, you know, you have this big engorged ventricle that is pushing the PMI downward and laterally. We may also see a heave at the apex. So you can actually, it's something that you would inspect uh, and see the apex of the heart 
hitting up against the chest wall. So as far as chest x-ray, we see cardiomegaly, engorged pulmonary vascular bed. Uh, we call those uh, curly B lines. Patient might have a pleural effusion. Now remember, we said that this would be a transudative pleural effusion because it's fluid only. ECG might show us left atrial enlargement, left ventricular hypertrophy, and a variety of atrial dysrhythmias, whether it's atrial tachycardia, atrial flutter, atrial fib, any of those are some potentials. So our diagnostics then are really going to be to look at echo, you know, for both sides, including biventricular failure. Now with biventricular, of course, you're taking everything I said uh, for right and left and combining it for bi V failure. So we want to look at echo to see wall motion, to see valve movement, to, to be able to measure pressures. Chest x-ray gives us a real good idea if the heart is enlarged, gives us idea what the lungs are doing. ECG, you know, what the patient's rhythm is. We can also pick up specific findings of atrial and ventricular enlargement when we look at the ECG. CBC, guys, it'll be good to know whether or not anemia might be a cause that's contributing to this patient's hypoxia and heart failure. So might it benefit this patient to have uh, a unit or two of cells? Serum electrolytes, what's the K doing? The mag, the FOS, the calcium, very important because they impact contractility. And then along with that, I just want to mention um, ABG analysis because certainly acid base has an impact on contractility. So if you have a pH that is less than 7.2, that is hugely important to address because you're going to lose contractile force with a pH that low. Uh, BNP, which I'm going to get into in just a second. We're going to go ahead and draw a BNP level. We want to check out those kidneys. What about BUN and creat? How are they doing? Uh, Serum albumin. Could there have been a, a nutritional or an albumin issue that is causing the fluid volume overload? Um, what about liver function studies? Looking at that liver, we're going to be doing that as well. We're also going to take a look at the thyroid, see if there are any thyroid issues. So we're going to draw a TSH. And of course, we're going to draw cardiac troponins in order to find out if this heart failure is related to an MI that perhaps the patient didn't know that they even had. Remember when we talked about acute coronary syndrome, we said that patients typically the elderly female diabetics those are the people that can have an MI without ever experiencing chest pain. And they come to our doors about day three, maybe day four with shortness of breath. And they're in heart failure related to the MI that they didn't even realize that they had. So now let's go back to BNP for a second. We know that BNP stands for brain natriuretic peptide. And what does a natriuretic peptide do? We have a couple of different, we have atrial natriuretic peptide and we have 
B-type natriuretic peptide. And what they do is they promote arterial and venous dilation as well as diuresis. And what triggers a natriuretic peptide is overstretch. So atrial natriuretic peptide is triggered by overstretch of the atria, whereas B-type natriuretic peptide is triggered by overstretch of the ventricles. It's a helpful marker in being able to identify um, heart failure. So a patient that has a serum level that is within normal limits is unlikely to have decompensated heart failure. So if you're drawing BNP, that would be less than 100. If you are doing pro-BNP, it's usually less than 300. So it's unlikely to, that patient's unlikely to have decompensated heart failure as part of their, their issue. However, when these peptides are elevated, that does not automatically 100% confirm a diagnosis of decompensated heart failure because we know that BMP levels can be increased in more than just heart failure. There are more conditions than heart failure that increase it, including anything that reduces glomerular filtration rate. So gee, there we have all of our patients with renal failure, ischemic stroke, liver dysfunction, severe infections, severe burns, and severe metabolic abnormalities. Any one or combination thereof can increase the BNP. Now, what are the most common causes of acute decompensated heart failure? Well, the lineup is myocardial infarction or myocardial ischemia, mechanical complications associated with myocardial infarction, hypertensive crisis, arrhythmias, sepsis, anemia, and decompensation of a pre-existing heart failure. And this most commonly is related to either medical and or dietary non-adherence. And we see that very commonly. So, Next, we're going to be talking about treatment for heart failure. Of course, oxygen has to lead the pack because these patients are going to come in hypoxic. And of course, BiPAP is extremely helpful because it helps deliver positive pressure. And we're going to talk about shunt when we get into the pulmonary section. But one of the good things about positive pressure is not only can you bleed in oxygen in order to deliver oxygen, but positive pressure reduces the shunting effect and improves oxygenation. We talked about treating anemia. So, and that's only if indicated, of course, in order to increase oxygen carrying capacity. Conscientious and cautious use of morphine. You know, um, morphine, the good side of morphine is that because of its opioid effect, we have a reduction in circulating catecholamines because of the patient's perception, right? The opioid uh, kind of effect. We also have a little bit of venodilatation along with that. But again, you have to be very conscientious about the, the use of morphine in these patients. But again, it definitely is uh, a therapy that we are going to incorporate uh, if we can. If a patient's profoundly hypotensive, 
Well, then we would have to hold off. Diuretic therapy, that's another one. We want to unload the patient, right? So our goals in dealing with heart failure is to what? Reduce preload, reduce afterload, and optimize contractility, all the while keeping in mind the patient's heart rate and rhythm and dealing with issues around it. So when we talk about diuretic therapy, we were using it for preload reduction. We said that morphine, because of its venodilatation, also can be kind of a nice little preload reducer. But we have to be careful, again, conscientious about the patient's blood pressure. Now, in the acute decompensating state, of course, we want to get in there with inotropes. And so when we have, when we're talking about inotropes, we basically have two classifications that we're dealing with. We're talking about the ones that enhance beta one, which, you know, the, the king of the pack there is definitely dobutamine or dobutrex. It is a pure beta agent. And when you give dobutamine, you are going to be enhancing contractility which this heart needs, okay? Decompensating heart failure needs an inotrope, needs to be unloaded, okay? And so we try to unload the patient. We give an inotrope. All of this, of course, is very much blood pressure dependent. Uh, we need, sometimes we need to use that inotrope in addition to a vasopressor, which is really kind of a scary proposition actually, because in decompensated heart failure, the heart is already so compromised, but we have to maintain perfusion pressure. Do we not? We need to strive for that MAP of at least 60. So combining an inotrope with a vasopressor is sometimes what we need to use. And the inotrope is typically dobutamine. The vasopressor is still, is typically norepinephrine. And if you need more in-depth information on the drugs that I'm presenting here, please go back to the episodes that deal with inotropes and vasopressors and antiarrhythmics and listen to those episodes. So for decompensating heart failure, we're going to get in there with our inotropes. We want to get in there if we have to blood pressure related with our vasopressors. Um, nitrate, a little bit of nitrate can be used as well. IV nitroglycerin as a nice venodilator. Again, we have to be very careful. Sometimes, you know, uh, the pressure won't tolerate it. It all is dependent upon perfusion pressure and mean arterial pressure. The benefit of using nitrates is we get some really nice venodilation with IV nitroglycerin as well as the coronary artery dilation. So it's a great preload reducer. It's a great coronary dilator. We also, of course, want to get the diuretics on board as soon as we can to offload this patient. Sometimes if, you know, renal function is very poor, we have to insert a uh, catheter and start uh, CRRT. So continuous renal replacement therapy. So some of the other drug families that we're going to use in patients with heart failure include the angiotensin 
receptor converting enzyme inhibitor. And the ACEs, what they do is they prevent the conversion of angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2, thereby producing both venous and arterial dilation. And by inhibiting angiotensin 2, your aldosterone production goes down. And when your aldosterone production goes down, you get rid of sodium and along with it fluid. So the main benefit of the ACEs and ARBs is you get some nice arterial and venous dilation and you get some nice diuresis out of using that drug class. Another drug class that has entered the scene is the combined angiotensin receptor blocker neprilysin inhibitors. They are abbreviated ARNIs. And an example of this drug class would be Entresto, for example. Now, what is neprilysin? Well, basically, neprilysin breaks down the effect of our peptides. So we have atrial natriuretic peptide, we have B-type natriuretic peptide, and our body's neprilysin actually breaks down the, um, those peptides. And so what happens with drugs like Entresto is neprilysin inhibitors prevent the breakdown of our body's peptides which is really a good thing when you think about the fact that those peptides are responsible for some real nice venous and arterial dilation and diuresis. So again, Entresto is an example of that where they've taken the, the beauty of the angiotensin receptor blocker and then really um, they're prolonging the effect of this drug class by preventing neprilysin from breaking down the effect of the body's peptides. So it kind of enhances the effect of those peptides for a longer period of time. Moving on in our treatment, um, we need to consider fluid restriction, uh, typically anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 or at most 1,800 um, cc's or ml's per day fluid restriction, definitely sodium restriction as well. Uh, once the patient starts eating, we have talked about pretty many of the drugs. Now I want to get into a little bit more on beta blockers. Uh, beta blockers are used primarily for heart failure maintenance therapy, simply because beta blockers decrease catecholamines. And it's interesting when it first came out where we were starting to use beta blockers in the treatment of heart failure, that there were studies that showed that the higher the catecholamine level in heart failure patients, the shorter their, the shorter their lives. So by incorporating beta blockers and blocking some of that um, catecholamine release, um, we are actually able to increase the longevity of patients with heart failure. And so <clears throat> beta blockers are a cornerstone of therapy along with the ACEs and ARBs and our diuretic therapy as needed. Some additional treatments? Well, certainly cardiac cath may be warranted with PCI if need be, considering the fact that one of the primary causes 
of uh, heart failure is coronary artery disease. So getting them into the cath lab, getting the PCI done as warranted, or perhaps the patient might need bypass grafting. Along surgical lines, we have to think about also valve replacement. So if, if the patient has a bad aortic or mitral valve, those are the most common they will need to be replaced in order to take some of the workload off the ventricle. Antidysrhythmic drugs, we talked about that, trying to maintain as normal of a rhythm as we can. And so especially, you know, atrial fib, we talked about it and the fact that you can lose 30% of your ventricular filling in those situations. In terms of trying to normalize the rhythm, there might be situations where we need a pacemaker, and that actually is going to be episode 15. I'm going to get into pacemaker therapy along with cardiac resynchronization therapy. So we're going to be talking about electrical therapy in um, episode 15. So cardiac resynchronization therapy has to do with pacing both sides of the heart, biventricular pacing, in order, to try, in order to try and synchronize ventricular contraction on both sides in order to enhance cardiac output. And we'll be talking about that more in episode 15. Maybe for arrhythmia management, the patient may need to have an a, uh, internal defibrillator if we have recurrent issues with sustained VTAC. Or going back to atrial fibrillation, electrical therapy in the form of cardioversion may need to be used in order to try and cardiovert the patient out of atrial fib, making sure, of course, first that there isn't an established clot in the atria. That's why a lot of cardiologists will order a TEE prior to cardioversion. So the patient literally signs the consent for TEE possible cardioversion. So they can perform a transesophageal echo in order to look to see if there is a clot in the atrium prior to cardioversion, which would be really bad news if there was a clot and we converted the patient into a more normal looking rhythm and that clot was expelled and the patient suffered a stroke, that would be a a very bad thing. Last but not least, uh, mechanical support for cardiogenic shock. In future episodes, we are going to be talking about shock as an entity and we will be covering cardiogenic shock at that time. So I'm going to defer the discussion on cardiogenic shock uh, to that time. Of course, there is the option also if uh, all treatment measures fail, uh, the, the, the last possible option would be cardiac transplantation. So guys, I hope you've enjoyed this episode on care of the patient with heart failure. And I look forward to working with you in future episodes. Thank you so much for joining me. Please head over to my website. The link is below or in the description. And I look forward to being with you in future episodes. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.